Hello everyone, welcome to the New Humanist Podcast. I'm Damien and this is episode 30, the second of part 5. The topic for today is the problem with the Catholic clergy. As we know, part 5 engages the anti-humanism of Roman Catholicism. Okay, I know that's a bit much, but understand the aim of this podcast. It's to understand the anti-humanistic character of religion. So, in this context, a critique of Catholicism, that is to say, honing in on the problematic facets of the Catholic faith in relation to the question of humanism, right? And humanism, as I've argued consistently throughout this series, focuses on the question of human betterment, on human upliftment, right? On the question of the well-being of the individual, right? And his or her life, and how that is positioned as significant, as most prominent, as the most worthy goal or aspiration of one's life, okay? So in line with that objective, in line with that goal, in line with that yearning that all of us, I believe, as human beings possess, how does religion, right, or in what way does religion, or in this case specifically, the Catholic faith, affect that question, right? Is it affirmative? Is it something that's reinforcing of that yearning, of that want, right? Of the desire to be better, to do good, to rise up, okay? The question of human well-being, which is at the center of the humanistic enterprise, because humanism is not, and I have not really delved into the, into the definitions of humanism, because so far I've only, I think, dedicated one episode to explaining what I think humanism is and what I believe humanism ought to be with respect to the question of human well-being. Now, when it comes to the Catholic faith and Roman Catholicism as a religious system, there are a number of problems I have identified, right, which are operative, knowingly or otherwise, of those who advance it, of those who practice it, of those who preach it, of those who govern the institutions that help in its transmission and its advancement via evangelization. And these areas of concern, these problem points which we need to engage, we need to understand, and which we need to critique. And by doing so, hopefully it helps us come to a better understanding of what religion ought to do, what religion ought to be in its functional character. That is to say, what should religions be positioning themselves towards? What kind of goals should they pursue? What kind of outcomes should they seek in line with the question of human well-being? Now, the question is this. Is that the right way forward? Is that the good thing to do? Is that the, how can I put it, spiritually acceptable trajectory to take? Because, of course, the religious argument will be, no, we're not here to do what people want to do. We're not here to do what you and I as individuals, as people, as mere human beings as ordinary men and women, right, are seeking or wanting. We are here to do God's will. That's the argument, is it not? We are here to represent God and His will and His plan, okay? We are here to help advance His vision, right, His goal, His plan for this world, right, which, of course, fundamentally breaks down into His plan for your life, right, for life of individual men and women, okay? So herein lies some conflicts, right? There are clear incongruities between the supposed will of God and the desire of the human person, okay? The ambition of the human spirit, the want for a better life, which I've argued is universal, right? Which is inherent within all of us. And how do these things come together? How do they essentially factor it into the broader question of human spirituality, which is not just a question about religion. It's not just about religiosity. It's not just about, paradoxically, it's not just about God. What are that supposed to be meant by the word God. Okay, there's a lot more to it. Now, the focus of this part, the next, well, now six episodes, is 
how Roman Catholicism as a religious system, right, is opposed to, is in many ways antagonistic to the human betterment project. One that I've argued is something that all of us are a part of, whether we know it or not, whether we realize it or not, whether we accept it or not. We're all trying to make the world and vis-a-vis -vis our lives better. And by making our lives better, we're making the world better. And this is something we're all part of, whether it's in technology, in art, in literature, in science, in mathematics, in music, in entertainment, we are all trying to be better, okay? We're all trying to grow and seek better things, higher frontiers, new horizons, new experiences, okay? Even if the things are immoral, for that matter, there's still something aspirational to this question. And how does religion, in this specific case, how does Roman Catholicism affect it? How does Roman Catholicism come to be a force which opposes it? How does Roman Catholicism, in its functional outworking, become an inhibitory force, restricting, curtailing, in many ways even undermining the thirst of man to seek better, greater things. Okay, the problem with Roman Catholic clergy. Just to be clear, guys, I've engaged this topic at various points in the course of this podcast. If you listen to the first episode, the introduction for part five, I outlined that there's a difference between the Protestants and the Catholics, obviously, but certainly the evangelicals, right, particularly the Pentecostal kind of groups, particularly a lot of the charismatic spiritual groups coming out of the United States particularly, which have a higher or rather a greater emphasis on human betterment. They believe in the blessing, right? In, in a very existential sense, in a very material sense, okay? But God showering blessings on you, and much of that essentially translates into a better economic status, or more financial gain, right? An increased one's material resources. Whilst those things are not always communicated directly, but it's very much a part of that equation. But with the Catholic faith, it's a bit different. Things are clearly different, okay? And this is most evident, of course, when it comes to the Catholic clergy. So let me just quickly provide a recap of my critique of the leadership of the Catholic Church, right? Clergy, men, and women. And this comes down to basically three things. First, the Catholic clergy, okay, as a group of people, right? So if you take the society as a whole, let's just take Western society, okay? Let's break it down further. Let's take people in a metropolitan city, right? In a cosmopolitan environment, okay? People who are educated, people who, let's say, have smartphones, who have access to the internet, who believe in market systems, right? Who believe in work, who believe in contributing to society through creativity and entrepreneurship and through sheer application, okay? People who want to build a life for themselves, which is a pretty large group, one could say, which is essentially the consumer base, right, of Western society, which is, I mean, for the record, that's like the core facet of modernity, right? Uh, not modernism, but uh, that's a topic for another time. My point is that this is the core, right? This is, you know, essentially the people who are living in cities, people who think globally, right, who are aware of what happens in other parts of the world, okay? And specifically, I guess I'm speaking here in this context of those in the, let's say, Anglo-American sphere. Break it down a bit further, right? Just to make things more simple and more accessible. This is not to say people living in Europe, continental Europe, or even in Eastern Europe, even in Slavic countries, cannot have this reference. Of course you can. But my point is that you know, if one looks at society broadly, you know, we tend to converge on a certain set of goals and wants and desires. You know, stronger material life, greater access to resources, better opportunities for career advancement, to grow as people, etc., etc. And also, we want the good stuff. Nice house, new gadgetry, we want all these things, right? X, Y, Z. Now, when it comes to those of us, okay, we are part of that group, okay? I mean, it's not even a question of, of geography, right? It's not even a question about what part of the world you're from, really. I mean, these aspirations are almost universal. Essentially, the idea of secularization goes hand-in-hand hand with modernization. And modernization goes hand-in-hand hand with westernization. And westernization goes hand-in-hand hand with the expansion of capitalism, with access to global markets and integration of global economies. You know, things like smartphones and Coca-Cola and Xbox and, and Netflix and, you know, YouTube and 
we are basically converging. Let's say we are converged on a set of values, on a set of interests, on a set of principles, which we desire, which we aspire towards. Now, if you look at it from that perspective, this group of people who are across the world, who are, I would say, numbering in billions, really, we want certain things out of life. And we are the driving force in many ways of society. The question is this. When we as a group have certain aspirations, the religious, in this case the Catholic Church, the institutions that represent it, come with a certain set of messages, advance a certain set of teachings, advance a certain, one could say, a worldview, which is problematic, which is incongruent to what we seek, which is not compatible to what we want, which is not aligned with the things that we desire. Why is that? Okay, why has it come to this? Why does the church and its message, in this case the Catholic Church, and its teachings and its notions about reality, its conception of life, its broader message on human well-being, on human life, why does it seem to run into conflict with what we seek and what we want and what we desire? And to understand this, we need to look at the character, the thought process, and really the psychology of the clergy, of the leadership class, one could say, that represents the church and by extension comes to define what the institution stands for. And after all, any institution ultimately comes down to its people. The Catholic Church is Catholic because it has, well, Catholic people in leadership structures, in leadership positions, right, who embrace a certain set of views, who embrace a certain worldview, and essentially running that institution. So what is problematic about them? And here I would break it down into three basic beliefs, basic views about reality, which distinguishes them, but not in a good way, not in a affirmative way, not in a special way, okay? There's nothing unique or there's nothing uplifting about these beliefs and states of mind. So three, three characteristics, right, that differentiates them, that puts them on a different side of the equation are, one, they believe in different things. Two, they, owing to their beliefs, they live a different kind of life. Their lifestyle differs from those of the rest of us. Point number three, their aspirations, which is different from one's beliefs, is different. They aspire towards different things. They have different kinds of aspirations with different endpoints, with different outcomes, which they are working towards. And these things differ from those of the rest of us. So let's break this down a bit. So point number one, they believe in different things. Now, this is interesting because it seems quite broad. It seems quite general. What do I mean by believing in different things? Heck, we all believe in different things. In a way, we do. Because we have different tastes. We have different interests. We have different, how can I say, goals that we are seeking, that we seek to attain and fulfill. That is true. But go back to the earlier point I made about the sort of convergent character of life. How society across the world are converging on a common set of interests and a common set of tastes. I mean, the fact that all of us like YouTube, the fact that we all like to, maybe not all the time, but certainly from time to time, we like to eat fast food. What is life without a good hamburger and a Coca-Cola, right? And of course, gaming. Who doesn't like playing good games? Who doesn't like you know, spending hours of time just de-stressing, get our mind off things, just to loosen up on a nice first person or immerse ourselves in a nice fantasy game, a fantasy world with all kinds of things going on? I mean, why is The Witcher, for example, right? The Witcher 3 game is so popular. Why? It's not only just a game with a decent combat system, good story, but it's immersive. You feel you're a part of something. You feel you're affecting something significant. And it's become part of our culture. Again, uh, this one, Fallout New Vegas, also very much the same. You know, it really you know, brings emotions out of people. And why is that? And it's not just some guy from one part of the world, but it's really almost universal. It's America, it's Europe, it's Asia, it's Africa. You know, we are sort of converging. A certain group of people, a large group of people actually, especially younger generation, particularly I would say generation XYZ, you know, people with aspirations, we are really converging at that level. And in that regard, our beliefs are also converging to a great extent. Most of us believe in that group, let's just say, believe in market system. There are very few of us who espouse socialism. I doubt it. Let me just use the Witcher example, right? I doubt a project like the Witcher games would have come about within a socialist system. Do you know what I'm trying to say here? It's a competitive element. It's the need 
for betterment. It's a need to improve consistently, relentlessly, all right? The need to bring out something that's worthwhile. And of course, to do it, you need to pay people. You need to remunerate those involved in the project. You need to commit yourself. You need to be creative. You need to be artistic, okay? You need to bring in talent. You need to have a vision. And then really, you need to have the freedom to do it. This, of course, applies to any productive enterprise. So in that regard, we are converging. We believe in the market system. We believe in entrepreneurship. We believe in the self-motivation, the drive to do things. So there is convergence there. Another set of beliefs, let's say, beliefs which differentiate, let's say, the people, most of us overall living in modern Western societies. And again, the word Western is not just a question about being in the West, whether it's Europe and America. You can be in Asia or in Africa. You can still have that mentality. You can still think like that. You can still, you know, operate at that level, right? It's, again, going back to the example about Xbox and PepsiCo, and, or it's Coca-Cola in your case, and iPhones and, and Android and Mac and so on. You know, it just creates that sort of a world, right, where you can become part of that can essentially become part of that matrix, not in a negative way, not in a restrictive way, although that can happen too, but it creates a set of unifying desires, sort of unifying convergence. I'm looking forward to the next AAA game, just like some guy in a city in some part of the Western world in Oslo or Copenhagen, Denmark. We're basically thinking the same. We're waiting for the next, uh, I don't know, next uh, iPhone. I don't use an iPhone for the record, but my point is, guys, we are converging on these things. We're converging on these interests. Second key factor I've already pointed out, the market ideological system, which is capitalism, essentially. We're also converging, or we already converge on the question of desire, right, on sensuality, okay? Going back to The Witcher, let me just use The Witcher as an example. One of the reasons why The Witcher is a good game, not just the third, the second and the first, is that it has a very strong sensual dimension. We have a liberal, I don't like the word liberal, but let's just use it for now, view of sexuality, right? And it's not just about intercourse, it's not just about people being able to do what they want, but it is you know, sort of an open, accepting, and affirmative view of sexuality. Sex is good. It's something to celebrate, something to affirm, something to accept, something to for us to be happy about. And it's not just about you know, the prudish, moralistic, you know, familial concept of sexuality, which is what you get from these religious people, but it is its outward expression in culture, in art, in music, in video games, okay? I mean, one of the reasons why The Witcher is interesting is because it has it's open about sexuality. It presents human sexuality in a very affirmative way. The female characters are done well, they look attractive, Yennefer's hot, Trish is good, she's you know, a beautiful redhead, Ciri's you know, amazing, you know, it's beautiful blonde, I mean, what can you say? Of course, it's a fantasy world, but nonetheless, we affirm that, we like that, okay? And of course, we like it in the real world. It's the same worldview, okay? The affirmation of human sexuality. And clearly, folks, you speak of the fantasy world, these people are not really following by the rules. They're not getting married, they're not getting settled down, they're not, there's no talk about, you know, doing it right, the kind of crap you hear from a lot of these religious... The point is, guys, we have converged on a view of life that is affirmative. We value sexuality in a good way, in its open, of course, you got to be responsible, you got to be safe, right? You don't want to be exploiting it, but there's a way for us to affirm it, to feel good about it and not feel guilty, not feel judgmental, not feel self-critical, overtly critical of it in, in an external way. You don't find that with religious people. Clearly, we don't. It's very difficult for, let's say, priests and nuns, these kinds of people, to think affirmatively of human sexuality. I don't think they can. I don't think they're able to. They don't have the capacity to do it. Or more pertinently, they never did. They never had it in them to start with. And that is why, probably, probably, I, could, I don't know, that these guys end up in these uh, clerical roles. I mean, think about it, right? Why do men and women, these guys, why do they become priests and nuns? Like, what is with them anyway? Think about the Catholic Church, right? What is driving these people to live the way they do? There's something not right with them. There's something not right about the way they think. There's something not right about the way they look. Okay, think about that for a second. By the way, guys, let's be clear. Let's, let's uh, for now, for a moment, just ignore the, you know, the, the criminal types, right? I guess you know what I'm talking about. Some of you know about the scandals in the Catholic Church. Let's not go there for now. But just look at the, at least the good ones, right? 
there's something weird about them, right? There's something awkward. They don't seem normal. I mean, for a start, I could be wrong in saying this, but I never really see a nun. I mean, again, if women, it's a bit difficult because girls, they have to sort of do their hair and wear some makeup and, you know, they look good. Whereas nuns, you know, their hair is covered and the head is covered and so on. So my point is they don't look like the attractive types. You get my reference, right? So there's probably something else going on. Probably the women who become nuns are not the most attractive. That's a point of view. And further still, I think this is especially true for men. I think the men who become priests are not the most, uh, what's the word, suave or suave. Well, they're certainly not ladies, men, so to speak. But frankly, I don't think they're in good at any level, right? They're probably not good conversationally. They're not probably not good socially. They're probably, they're probably not good when it comes to relationships. Right? They probably wouldn't be, even if they tried to, okay? I mean, just to give an example, a lot of these priests I know, they commit to the idea of a priest life at a very young age. It's interesting because one guy I knew, he basically was like not even 15, right? Where he saw a priest, you know, dressed up like something. And he said, that's how I want to be. So this openly, the family get together. And, and we talked about how we committed to the vocation. He was saying he was like, you know, a young man, adolescent, basically. And he said, look, I, I want to become like that. I want to lead that kind of life. And you sort of have to think, wait, what about everything else? What about your career? What about girls? Didn't you like them? Did you want them? You know, I, I couldn't ask these questions, but it, it seemed evident that these, these people they just didn't want it. They just didn't like it. They didn't seem to associate with it. Or rather, they could not. They were unable to, right, affirm these aspects of life. Hence, their beliefs about reality are different. Hence, their beliefs about the nature of what is enjoyable, what is beautiful, is completely, I won't say screwed up, but it's, it's wired differently. So they can't find joy in the beautiful things in life. They can't, the idea of the pursuit, right? You like a girl, you want her in your life, you go after her. The whole thing, right? I mean, that doesn't seem to appeal to them. As men, it seems to me that could be the case. That whole idea, that whole aspect of life from a psychological or even a mental or even a physiological perspective, which is closed off. So the idea of religious life or a priestly life becomes appealing. I'm getting at here, folks, is the idea of belief. These people believe in different things. It's not just a question about them having a different kind of life because they have chosen a certain way of life, but rather their beliefs themselves have come from a certain point of being, right? It comes from within. It comes from who they are as people. And I don't think there's anything special about it. I don't think there's anything particularly unique about it. I mean, for example, the other day I was listening to a priest. Uh, he was talking about the happiness equation. I won't say who the priest is, although some of you guys may have an idea. And he was talking very loosely and irresponsibly about, oh, culture is becoming very materialistic. It's very hedonistic with a lot of quote-unquote pornography out there. Okay, Now, that's becoming a very loose term, by the way, folks. It's something which I'll get into. In fact, I might actually do an episode on that particular subject. That's, that's going to be a big one, actually. But anyway, he was talking very loosely about cultures become very materialistic and there's so much pornography around, etc. You can basically sense what he's saying. He's a priest. He's celibate in principle. He doesn't have anything going on in his life. And clearly, you know, if you're a priest or if you're a Christian, you're not supposed to be consuming pornography. That goes without saying. It's supposed to be anyway. But you can see him being so dismissive, speaking of this as some kind of external reality, something that's bad, wrong, unacceptable. Do you get the impression that he has no reference point? It's not just pornography that they think is bad. It is sexuality. And it's not that it's bad. They cannot identify with it. They cannot relate to it. They don't have the capacity to do it. Okay, so the beliefs themselves they have about reality, about sexuality, about morality, etc., etc., comes from a standpoint or from a basis of inadequacy, of absence, and that is point number one. Okay, point number two, they embrace a different lifestyle. Now, this follows logically from the first, which is to say, it's not just a question of what you believe in, but how you choose to live your life. Which is to say that if your beliefs about reality are different, if your beliefs about money, about power, about pleasure, right, about sensuality are different, or I would say warped, or basically suboptimal, they're not developed, right? And frankly, I think that a good argument can be made that people who become priests and nuns in the Catholic Church are basically people who are maladapted. 
they are not grown, they are not matured, right? The reason why these people piss off into the clergy, right, and become priests and nuns is because they can't deal with who they are as people. They haven't matured or grown. I mean, to put this in perspective, right? So this is, I mean, for girls, maybe, but certainly for men, you need a right of passage. You need to grow, right? You need to know how to conduct yourself in the real world. You need to know how to not just, it's not just a technical thing about work. It's not just an expertise question about being able to do things. It's not just a question about, you know, social skills, being able to talk. But, but there's a definite deeper process of maturity, how you come to know things, how you come to relate to people, how do you come to conduct yourself in social organization, in social situation, especially when it comes to women, how you build relationships, how you initiate intimacy. There's, there's a lot to it. And I'm, I'm starting to suspect a lot of these religious people, the way they talk about sex, about morality in a very, I say, they seem disconnected. They don't know what they're really saying. They're just talking about these things as an abstract thing in a very conceptual sense. And they don't have the association. They cannot form the association with those things. And it seems to me with very good reason. And critically here, going to these era say inadequacies, these people live a different life. They may have a smartphone, but they may not be using all of its capability. They may have the capacity to travel around the world, but I doubt they'll be traveling to a nice place to have a good time. I doubt they'll be going to Hawaii to lie on the beach and sip a cocktail. I doubt they'll be going to Las Vegas and take in the sights and experience all the lights, camera, and action, if you get my drift. You just get the impression that these people don't live the life that we live, or more pertinently, they don't want to live the life that we want to live, okay? They don't want the things, guys. They don't want to be happy. I don't like the word happiness for the record, but they don't like to be happy in the way that you and I want to. They don't want to go and visit a nice football stadium and enjoy a football game. They might say, oh, you know, I'd rather be at church and praying. You know, I'd rather be at, at a novena or at some kind of a religious retreat, right? Or rather at some kind of religious pilgrimage, doing those kinds of things. Rather, you know, being at a nice club, you know, listening to good music, dancing, having a nice drink, you know, having rum and coke, okay? Those desires, those wants from a lifestyle perspective are non-existent. They don't have it. Hence, their ability to relate to us as people, to relate to us, the modern cosmopolitan, metropolitan people who want to have a good life, who like to listen to good music, who want to dance, right? Who want to drink now and then, okay? Don't drink all the time, folks, for the record. It's not good for your liver. But my point is we want to live a good life. And that is okay. That is good. But these people cannot do it. The priests and nuns and whatever, they don't have the reference point. They don't have the belief and they don't have the aspiration. Okay, now we're getting there. Now, point number three, the aspirational character of this problem. Priests and nuns and, and the clergy and the leadership as a whole, they don't aspire after the things that you and I aspire. They don't want the things that we want, not just because they feel good, not because they make us feel happy, not because, okay, not happy, but satisfied, content, right? They make us feel fulfilled. They give us pleasure. They give us satisfaction. They give us, I don't know, ecstasy, right? They give us motivation, right? You want things. You know, it's, it's like in life, right? You know, you want something, right? And till you get it, you, you feel empty, right? And when you get it, like you're happy. And then you say, you know, what? okay, I got it wrong. What's next? Do you know what I mean? And that's life. And, and that's okay. As opposed to say, you know, a lot of these religious types, a lot of these people from these meditative traditions, I think, like these Carmelite people and these, uh, I mean, frankly, all of them, the priests, the nuns, the mystics and so on. These people don't want things. They don't aspire after things that we want. I mean, just look at them, right? Look at these people. Look at priests and nuns. They're dressed in white. They're dressed in black. It's like the whole life is a freaking funeral. There's no joy in that way of living. There's no, no glitz or glamour. There's nothing exciting or inspiring, okay? I mean, just look at the stars. Like, look, the best example, I guess, would be the, the rap guys, right? I mean, you can say what you like about the rap stars, but they know how to put on a show. They have the bling, they have the cars, right? They have the, you know, hot babes, whatever. And that is something, I mean, you can say, oh, well, that's, uh, you know, indulgent, that's hedonistic. Well, I don't like the word hedonism. It's a poor term, actually. But at least it gives you something. And I mean, just look at, you know, Beyonce, right? I mean, I'm not a big fan of Beyonce, but she commands a presence. People want to see her. They want to listen to her. 
like the celebrities, right? I'm not a fan of celebrities, generally speaking, but hey, they're popular, they're famous. They have millions of followers. The same cannot be said for the, for the Catholic Church. The Catholic clergy and priests are boring. They're lame, they're lousy, right? Sorry to say it, guys, but just on the face of it, that's how they seem. I mean, even if you take a lot of these famous folk, right? Let's take the famous Catholic, I don't know, celebrities, right? For the lack of a better word, you sound like Bishop Barron, right? You know, he's like the big Catholic, you know, public face. I mean, with all due respect, that guy's not interesting. I mean, he opens his mouth and the first thing he says is money doesn't make you happy. That's really his philosophy. Pleasure doesn't make us happy. We have to become like the crucified Christ. That, that's his idol. But he idolizes the, the crucified Jesus Christ. And that's a topic that is forthcoming in the course of this, one of the episodes in this critique of Roman Catholicism will be that. And that's a serious episode. My point is, folks, there's nothing joyful about these people. There's nothing joyful about the Catholic Church. These are its representatives. They look dead. They look boring. They look just visualizing the leaders of the Catholic leaders I've seen, priests and so on. They all look boring, uninspiring. They don't look great, right? They don't look inspiring. I mean, just look at Tom Cruise. I mean, just the other day I was watching this video. You know, Tom Cruise is doing the new Top Gun movie. I think it's going to come out. And there's another Mission Impossible movie as well. I mean, that guy is in his what, late 50s. He still looks good. He still looks the part, right? Because he's popular, he's rich, he's famous, right? And that's the sort of person you want to be like, and not these Catholic priests and leaders and, and whatnot. There's nothing inspirational about them. To give another example, this is a tough one, but I'll give it anyway. The inspirational character of the Catholic faith is where the problem lies. Why? Because the people who represent the church don't aspire after great things. This example about Mother Teresa, right? And this is maybe something for another time. The problem with the Catholic church's leaders don't aspire after great things. They don't aspire after wonderful things. They don't aspire after the beautiful things. They don't aspire after luxurious things. They aspire after mediocrity. There's the idea of service and sacrifice and helping the poor and needy. But I don't know, that doesn't seem very great. I mean, think about it, right? What is there to aspire? What is there to want, right, from the idea of serving the poor? What is there to really make you feel enthusiastic, lively, and hopeful about trying to go to the slums of India and help, you know, people in a horrible state? I mean, I'm not questioning the ethical or the moral character of that action. It's very good to help people in need. But it doesn't inspire you. It should not inspire you as far as I'm concerned, okay? I mean, to put it bluntly, folks, if the idea is the elevation of poverty, there are better ways to do it than just social services, right? I mean, look at communist China, for example. Its ability to adopt market principles and generate wealth and then redeploying that wealth in infrastructure and healthcare and social services has been able to eradicate many of these problems more efficiently, far more efficiently than a country like India. I mean, Calcutta, as far as I know, is still basically SHID, SHOLE, from what I can understand, and none of her efforts have really forth concrete change okay so one has to question the efficacy of such methods so again i'm not suggesting that people who choose to lead a life of service of giving of sacrifice is bad which is what these people do what catholic priests and nuns do their whole life is about service but the point it doesn't inspire anyone i don't want to be like them i want to be like steve jobs i mean that's a terrible thing to say i'll never succeed i mean steve jobs you know, he's somewhere else he's from a different planet my point is, I want to be someone like that, just from an inspirational standpoint. I want to be like Tom Cruise. Again, that's a stupid thing to say, but hey, right? I want to be famous like him, right? I want to be in a big action film. I want to be dating supermodels, you know? I want to be, I mean, the very idea. These are things that we aspire to. Now, you can argue, oh, they're immoral, they're sinful, they're not the right thing. You know, wanting to date supermodels may not be the right thing to do from a Christian moral perspective, but my point is that there's a deeper sense of desire, there's an urge, there's a want to have those things. And we see it in the material world. We see it in in the non-religious world, we see it in those who are leading society, right, culturally. We'll leave the intellectual leadership aside, but certainly just from an outward, external perspective, the Catholic leadership, the priests and nuns are not representative. They're poor representatives of a good life. In fact, they represent a terrible life. They represent a life without joy. They represent a life without happiness. I mean, look at their life. There's no love. There's no 
physical intimacy. There's no sex. It's not just intercourse. It's the whole process. There's no journey. There's no the idea of the pursuit, the idea of building passion, the idea of... I'm not a fan of the word seduction because it basically implies that girls don't have the agency to decide for themselves. That's not true. But the whole idea of the pursuit, the whole idea of building a relationship, all the excitement, the whole idea of desire building up slowly and then in sort of accelerating and then the whole thing is lost and their inability to have those experiences cuts them off. It basically incapacitates them from being able to appreciate other aspects of life, be able to relate to good things in life, to have a party, to enjoy yourself, to let loose, to forget about everything else. You got to do that from time to time, provided that you're doing everything else, provided you're doing it responsibly. The point is the Catholic leadership, priests and nuns, they're not good. They don't seem good. Even though their commitments is to the great things like trying to be good, trying to be holy. But all of this stems, from my perspective, from a position of weakness, from a position of inadequacy, from one's incapacity to live, to live fully, to express yourself, to grow. The inability to put this in Maslowian terms, the inability to self-actualize, to be able to achieve and attain the things that you want. It is that inability is what has given them this way forward, this outlet called religion. So the church, the church-based lifestyle of being a priest, of being a celibate, being personal sacrifices, a person who is always serving, a person who does not want money, power, or pleasure, or honor, that is a consequence of their weakness, of their pathetic state in life. The origins of that, that is a weakness, that is the inability to fulfill one's aspirations. It is a case of, I would say, almost running away from your weakness, your inability to face them. And religion, in this case, for these people, has become an outlet for expression. That's a deeper point, and I'll engage that going forward. But for now, you need to consider, listener, is that the problem with the Catholic Church is primarily one that is represented by its clergy. The weaknesses of the Catholic Church is embodied by the clergy, by the priests and the nuns. They are the ones who have this problem. And what is the problem? They have different beliefs. They believe in different things. They don't want the things that we want. They don't want the things that we seek. Hence, their lifestyle is different. The way they operate in society is different. Their conduct is different. The way they view problems and how they react to them is different. And that in turn works into an aspirational question. They aspire after different things. They don't want the things that we want. They don't want a better life. They don't want a great life. They don't want honor. They don't want luxury. They don't want beauty, okay? Or they may want some beauty. Maybe it's just a highly parochial conception of beauty. Maybe it's like Baroque art, basically, right? As opposed to, let's say, a beauty pageant. You get my drift. They don't want the glamour and the glitz, right? They don't want these so-called superficial things or things which fuel our ego. But brothers and sisters, there's a deeper truth to them. There is a deeper goodness to them. There's a deeper positivity that can be is associated with them, and rightly so. And that is something that is lost or is unappealing, or that is something that's unavailable to these people, for the Catholic clergy and women. And that is a problem. And that, in its manifestation, we are religion. We are the teachings of religion. We are the advance of the church, promulgates or advances an anti-humanistic influence. Because these people, effectively, Functionally, I would say necessarily come to oppose our objectives. They oppose our aspirations. They oppose our will to live fully. They oppose our will to exercise our freedom to seek out and achieve and attain these things. Why? Because they, at a deeper level, I suspect, are screwed up. This is the New Humanist Podcast. This is episode 30, the second of part five. And see you guys next time.